And uh, I can't believe we've been in Buddhism for three weeks, but it's been good discussions, I hope, uh, for you all. And thanks, thank you, Ben, for standing in last week and talking about apologetics and, and temptation from that book. Appreciate that. But, uh, before we uh, really get into our discussion tonight, we've changed this main idea. You know, for the first two sessions, we said that Jesus Christ offers something far greater than nirvana. And some of us say, yeah, duh, what is it? For Buddhists, we can go into the gospel from that point. He offers everlasting life, something I think it's easy to get used to, and it's kind of like that's news from when I was back uh, coming to Bible school as a kid, but I think it's absolutely revolutionary. Uh, our verse is John eight 12. I'll read that, and we're going to watch a quick video. And the Bible says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light. Of life, and Buddha said, "Be what unto yourselves? Be lights." We know we covered that several weeks weeks ago. He said, "Be your own light." Jesus says, "I am the light." Buddha said, "You search for the truth within yourself." Jesus says, "I am the truth." Buddha said, "Meditate and try to achieve that level of consciousness to find uh, the way." And Jesus says, "I am the way." So all I, I guess we could say everything in Buddhism points inward. So if we could if we could just use our fingers, we could say Buddhism points here, right inside. Christianity points to God and God alone for salvation. Uh, how to witness to a Buddhist. Uh, one good way is to start out with acknowledge shared convictions. Now, what are we not saying when we say that we acknowledge shared convictions with Buddhism? What type of acknowledgments or shared convictions do we not have that are pretty obvious, that we can never concede? Absolutely, we can't we can't give up Scripture. We can't give up Jesus. Basically, something that would probably help us all is the fundamentals of the faith. You know, the literal return of Jesus Christ, the physical bodily return of Jesus, the physical resurrection, the virgin birth, um, the salvation only through Jesus, and the inerrancy of the Bible. That is what makes up Christianity. If we just said that. So really, whatever group you're talking to, it's not necessary to become an expert on, um, we're going to get to this in a couple months, but like Jehovah's Witnesses and all the weird ways they interpret Scripture. Or um, to know the pearl of great price for the Mormons. It's not necessary to know that in great detail. We know the truth, and so we've got the truth, and we say, what do you think about these things? What do you believe about Jesus? And that will help us be able to give a defense without having to spend 15 years becoming a cult expert, right? And I think a lot of times when we think about apologetics, we think, I have to learn every bit there is to know about Islam in order to ever talk to a Muslim about Jesus. And that's not true. I can't wait till we get to Islam, y'all. It's going to be so much fun. And just want to put the thought in your mind, when you talk to a Muslim, they already have in the Quran to where Jesus is respected, Jesus is a prophet, Jesus in the Quran is two thumbs up. 
So sometimes I think Christians in churches, we think, well, if I talk to a Muslim about Jesus, they're going to get all irate and go crazy. No, no, no. And you could even use the, the Arabic word, Isa. I mean, he's a good guy within Islam. So you can springboard for that, like in that great book that says he's more than a prophet, right? So when we, when we say this, a lot of times there's some knee-jerk reactions. Well, oh, we, we can't concede any, you know, mutual understanding or beliefs, but there are some things that we can um, acknowledge. Number one would be that this life is not all there is. Buddhists believe that this is not all there is. Christians believe that this is not all there is. Now, obviously, for us, we believe that there is a place called heaven, and that is going to be with the personal creator God. Buddhism doesn't believe that, but that's a way that we can start off with, um, instead of coming to say, you know, oh, you're a Buddhist? Yeah, Buddha's in hell. So my name is, you know, that's not usually the best way to go about it. Um, number two would be whatever can be lost is not of ultimate value. Do you agree with that? Think about American materialism. What do you think are some examples from our culture that would clash with both, both Buddhism and Christianity? Wow. Yeah, the search that money will make me happy. That if I can just have a little bit more, that's where the meaning of life is found. Yeah. Uh, third would be that not everything that exists is physical. Buddhism and Christianity both believe that. Uh, number four, possession of great wealth and power is ultimately unfulfilling. We'll break this down at the last slide, but Luke nine twenty three through 26. A great text to use with a Buddhist, because not only does it undercut materialism today, but it shows the way um, to eternal life with Jesus. And also, placing oneself above others is wrong. That's what Buddhism teaches. Christianity, we have the ultimate example of that, where Jesus uh, willingly gave himself to become a human on our behalf so that we might be saved. <clears throat> also, it is bad to be a slave to one's passions. Things like anger, or lust, or drunkenness, or pride, or you know anything like that, Buddhists... And Christians understand that this is not good. Like if you brought it up in a Buddhist meeting or a Christian meeting, hey look, I have this issue in my life. They would both say, uh, you need to work on that. So next would be that meditation is good. And we would say so long as it is focused on God and his word. How many of you would say that sometimes when you hear people talk about meditation, that makes you a little bit uneasy? My hand goes up. Okay, People say in Western context... I've been meditating lately. And we should think, what have you been meditating on? What, what, what is usually, I mean, it can be anything from like an old school martial arts class or something like a college neural Buddhism seminar, something like that. But what, what usually does Western, obviously not Christian, Western meditation, what does that usually consist of? When people talk about that. Okay, yeah. Some, right, the new age. Some people meditate with yoga, work on their breathing. A lot of people do that stuff to de-stress, right? They see if I can just have that 20, 30 minutes and meditate and try to empty myself of myself, which honestly a lot of times we, we just say, well, who's doing the emptying? You know, like if you're emptying yourself, you're the one there taking out the, you know, and it just goes in this vicious circle and it breaks down and it doesn't make sense. But there is something interesting in Psalm 1. Let's turn there really quick. 
uh, if you've got your Bibles. And I want to just read some of that about what I think we don't emphasize in American Christianity very often. Because we're from the West. We are not Eastern people. Most of us have been you know, raised in the U.S. And so here's, here's what the Bible has to say about the power of meditation. Blessed is the man, this is Psalm 1-1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his what? Delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now notice the picture here of what happens when we meditate on God's word. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Now notice the contrast here. Before we look at the contrast in verse 4, what are the characteristics of the man who meditates? What does he not do? You can start there in verse 1. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, right? So, so, so his informant, so to speak, his, his, the staff of his life doesn't come from the world, and he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And no, notice how interesting this is. First he's walking, then he's standing, then he's sitting. That's usually the way it works with sin, right? First, we say, oh, this is not too bad. We can hang out, listen to them. They have some good truths. We're walking with them, then we're standing. You know what? That's a good point. And then but by the time we know it, we're sitting with them, and then we're influenced. Now, notice the contrast of the wicked who does not meditate on God's word, but rather they're informed by the world. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The Old Testament uh, that was translated from Hebrew, this is just, just a little FYI, that was translated from Greek, uh, Hebrew to Greek, the Greek Septuagint, and you'll sometimes see it noted as the LXX. The way that they translate this in the Greek uh, Old Testament is but are like the chaff that the wind drives away from the face of the earth. That's like modern terminology, totally blown away. I mean like a, like a hurricane, like gone, the memory is gone, there is no lasting impact. But, verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Why? Because they have no foundation. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? will perish. Now, in verses 3 and 4, if we, according to the Bible, if we meditate in God's law, if we think about, if we take, I guess you could, this is probably not the best reference, but if we could just straight line Bible into the, the, into the veins of our life, if we could take pills that have just truth, any way that we can, whether that's reading it, uh, sometimes I'll use my iPhone here when I'm getting ready in the morning, whether that, you know, shaving or, you know, in the restroom or fixing um, breakfast, just have the Bible playing. I don't do it every day, but if you have a free Bible app and you're hooked up to Wi-Fi at your house, you can have that playing so you're hearing God's Word. Try to get it by listening to Christian music, by listening to preaching, so that so much of our character becomes formed by what we take in. We've all heard that old adage, you are what you what? You eat. There's probably a million of them. That's the one I was thinking of. I'm like, I don't know. What is it, Jeff? But but yeah, we are what we we eat. And according to the Bible, 
if we meditate on God's word in the strongest Old Testament terms for an Eastern culture, you would be like a mighty oak tree that is there, that is planted by the source of strength. And I think a lot of times in Christian life, if we can make this application point, why we get worn down, and yes, we can get battle weary. Yes, we can be serving Jesus. We can be staying free from habitual sin. We can be loving people and still get tired. But a lot of times we get busy, right? We get busy and we separate ourselves. We transplant the tree of our life away from the streams of water from the source. And then we wonder why we're weak and we're dried up and we're absolutely emotionally exhausted. So I just encourage you, by this, by the, just this one text in the Bible, do your utmost to stay rooted in God's Word, not to be a good Christian, but because that's where the source of joy is. That's where meaning is, and that's communion with the one who loves us. So here's where it gets a little awkward. When we talk about meditation with someone who doesn't come from a non-Christian background, sometimes we can react. Like there was a Muslim friend of mine that we met on a mission trip, long crazy story. I may have told it here in church one time, but he ended up coming to Texas when I lived there. And he was being trained in NATO. And long story short, he was able to come spend a weekend with me at my uh, apartment there in Fort Worth. And not only was he a Muslim, but he was also involved in some... Asian uh, type of, I guess we could say, religious meditations and, and so forth. And he said, I meditate. Do you meditate? And I, 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 it was just like, the knee-jerk reaction was like, no, I don't do that pagan stuff. I don't try to open myself up to demons. And that's kind of like what I thought at first. But then the Lord brought Psalm 1 to my mind. I said, you know what? We as Christians are supposed to meditate. And the cool thing is we have someone worthy of meditation on, right? We get to meditate upon God and His Word. So that kind of in our our rationalistic, scientific, Western mindset, we want to kick back against a lot of that stuff. But in actuality, we do, or we are commanded to meditate, but we have someone to meditate on as opposed to trying to empty ourselves with ourselves. But any, any, any comments there? That wasn't a tangent, I hope, but I just wanted to, to illustrate that so that so that we can use the meditation with a lot of Eastern religions to say, yes, we do, and ours is actually something of worth. We'll uh, go to the final point. In other words, what we're saying here is that we both agree that things are not right, right, with Buddhists, but we disagree on the cure and the why. For example, a Buddhist tries to, to I guess we could say, meditate and seek after enlightenment, so that they can be freed from suffering. Why do we seek after God? There can be a lot of reasons. We can go that He is worthy of all worship, that He's the source of joy and fulfillment, that He's given us a command, that He's saved us, so therefore we have a duty to Him, but not just a slavish duty, it's one of love between a father and a son and a daughter. So all of that, I think, will help us lay a common groundwork if we talk to a Talk to Buddhists. But here's, here's the big question that we want to build upon. Why do we serve and love God? Westminster Confession, you may be familiar with this, is, quote, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, the answer is kind of up there, 
But let's ask the question, why do you think most of the time in just evangelical Baptist church life, why do we serve, why do we serve and love God? What do you think some of the motivations are there just in the wider Christian world of why we would do anything for the Lord, quote unquote? think some some reasons that people serve the Lord that, that may not be may not be right. We're, gonna, we're not talking about the loving because obviously if you love God that is coming from the heart to God's heart and so forth. But what, what what are some reasons that you think people may outwardly serve the Lord today? Some like praise, ah. you know. Okay, okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And be part of an in crowd. Mm. What's that? As a, like an image, they want that image that they're serving. And okay. They're going through the motions, but their heart's not. Okay. Sometimes yeah. it might be that people think they're earning salvation. Mm. Mm. You notice, I think all, all of those, those answers that y'all gave, all of that at the very core, at the bulb of that plant, it has self written all over it. Right? You know why Buddhists do what they do? It's for self to reach enlightenment. So I think this is a healthy point for all of us to stand back and reevaluate from time to time why we do what we do. There's a great little 10-minute video by Francis Chan. I think you can find it free online. We may even have some extra copies here. Um, but it's called Just Stop and Think. It's an awesome thing to say, you know, sometimes we just need to put the brakes on our life and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? Do I even want to do what I'm doing? What is the purpose behind what I do with my work and friends and church and serving and so forth? So that's why I put up here uh, the answer here. We're, we're trying to bring a lot of stuff together and answer a huge question in just a small amount of space. But why do we serve and love God? We know that God is the source of all joy, and we've been hardwired to desire Him and to gain pleasure in serving Him, right? So therefore, we should never feel guilty about, quote-unquote, enjoying serving God. Just because something is fun doesn't make it wrong. Now, at this point, I think it would be very healthy for us to step back and say um, things like some of us have uh, heard in church before. For example, I've heard people say in Bible study. We don't drink coffee. We don't have donuts. We're studying God's word. That type of mentality. You know, be quiet. You're in church. What does that mean? What is the church? Is this the church? Biblically, what is the church? It's the people. So I think sometimes we can have this, you know, beat ourselves and give ourselves stripes on the back thinking that if I'm enjoying this, then therefore it's not what I should be doing. Because if I'm serving God, I've got to not enjoy it in some regard. But when we get saved and born again, we have desires that we never had before so that we gain pleasure in serving God. Not a bad type of guilty pleasure, but to where we enjoy being able to come to church. You know? 
It's like, man, I, I, I enjoy being able to serve. I enjoy giving to missions. I enjoy giving of myself and being inconvenienced when I could be doing other things that would just be about myself. So a lot of that comes from the changed heart and knowing that God is the source of everything that has true pleasure. Because what the world gives is just kind of like candy, right? Tastes good for just a second, but it will rot your guts, as my dad said growing up, and it will rot your teeth. It's something that has temporary pleasure, but it brings death and destruction and pain in the end. So that would be a great little sermon to preach to kids like around Halloween time. you know. Anyway, maybe a little bit too heavy. But uh, here's, here's the second part. Uh, the first question that we should ask, or second question we should ask about uh, Buddhism. We should just ask Buddhists, how do you know that Buddhism is true? Here's what Winfrey Corduan says. He says, the greatest opportunity for Christians to establish a communications bridge with Buddhists may lie in the ambivalence of Buddhism itself, or just the confusingness of it all. Uh, Number three is to point to the massive historical evidence for Christianity. And here's a rather lengthy quote. I thought about, should I put this up here? I think it's in your, in your outline. It should be. A lot of times I don't read quotes that are really long. Because you all have the tendency to zone out sometimes when quotes are read. I do. So, but I think this is very important. Um, um, the difference between the historical support behind Christianity and the historical support behind Buddhism. So here's, here's what it says. Buddhist tradition differs fundamentally from that of Christianity. In Christianity, we can distinguish an initial tradition embodied in the New Testament from a continuing tradition, which consists of the fathers and the doctors of the church. In other words, people who came after the apostles. <clears throat> the decisions of the councils and synods, the pronouncements of various hierarchies, Buddhists possess nothing that corresponds to the New Testament. Okay? The continuing tradition is all that is clearly attested. In other words, what Buddhists have just said, other Buddhists have done. The bulk of the selections in this book, this is uh, from the Buddhist scriptures, if you wouldn't just picked it up at Barnes & Noble, this would be in the foreword, was written down between, um, or this is speaking about Christianity, uh, AD 100 and 400, in other words, about six to 900 years after the Buddha's demise. Now, Christianity, our earliest fragment is around 125 AD. They said there's some early ones that have been found, but for Buddhism, uh, the gap between when they say that the scriptures were given and when we have the earliest copies is six to nine hundred years. And within Christianity, let's say Jesus died at 33 AD and they were written down in 125. That's the earliest, I guess, copy that we have. But then even still, they were written down in the first generation, right? So you're talking about massive, massive gap in historical evidence for Buddhists. For the first 500 years, the scriptures were orally transmitted. Different schools wrote down different things. Much of it was obviously composed centuries ago, and some of it must represent the direct and actual sayings of the Buddha himself. At present we have, however, no objective criterion which would allow us to isolate the original gospel. Speaking of Buddhism. So we really don't know what he said, because everybody said he said different things. All attempts to find it are based on mere surmise and mere guessing, and the discussion of the subject generally leads to nothing but ill will and fruitless disputes. Now let's transition to the documentation of Christianity. 
The documentation behind Christianity, we do have something called textual variants. Some text will say different things, but it's usually just the minor spelling of a word. Like you can even find that in, in versions today. If you go to a King James version, sometimes it will translate Elijah, Elias. That's just another way of saying somebody's name today. Like you could say there's Ben or Benjamin or maybe, were you Benny when you were younger? Okay, alright, well, don't, don't call Ben Benny. You get what I'm saying? Like we, we do that same type of stuff t- today. Yeah, we don't want to start that. Don't, don't want to give people nicknames. But, uh, but I just, I mean, what, what do you guys think about this? Between six and nine hundred years when random things, people were writing down random things that Buddha said? I mean, what, 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 do, what impact does that make on you when you compare that I'm not even talking about the Holy Spirit bringing the gospel to your heart, but we're talking about strict, rational, historical, evidential support of the Bible. And what type of reaction would you have towards this when you realize how much better supported historically Christianity is than Buddhism? I wouldn't put too much faith in Buddhism. It's a great word. Yeah, I wouldn't put too much faith in it. Because the thing is, is if somebody says, I am a practicing Buddhist, what they're saying is that I am staking my eternity on whether this is true. And that's right, like Blaise Pascal, Pascal's wager, saying, well, if God doesn't exist, and I think that He exists, what have I lost in the end? R- really nothing, because everybody's going to be dead, everybody's just going to cease to exist. But if I... God does exist and yet I've lived my life saying that he doesn't and the Bible's true and in the end I've lost everything so that, that may be something helpful to talk to Buddhists about not just the historical evidential grounds but just that's a huge gamble and here's the thing even if Buddhism is true you'll have another trip to figure it out right? so why are you stressing out right now? So that, that's just a, you know, an, another, another thing that will hopefully not beat them in an intellectual battle, right? That, that's, that's something we never want to get into with thinking, boy, I have a perfect, it's going to be a, a Jesus jab, and I'm going to come around with, you know, I, I guess a righteous right hook, and I'm going to knock them to the apologetics canvas. And I mean, this is going to be, to the glory of God, take them down in that argument. We, that can be the tendency, have you ever had that tendency before when you're talking to somebody about Jesus and you've got the right answer and you give that right answer and inside your heart you're just like, boom. But is the point to win the argument and win the argument alone is to win the person. And a missionary with the International Mission Board, really young guy, he actually had a ponytail, he it, you know, a lot of times you don't think of that like Southern Baptist missionary, you know, like be, very cool guy. He had worked in a lot of Muslim nations and he told me, he says, Jeff, I have, because he's a real combative guy. And in the Muslim culture, we'll learn this. If you believe something, you get very emotionally involved with it. With us, we say, well, yeah, I understand your opinion. I disagree. But why don't you look at it from this opinion? If you do that, in most Muslim cultures, they say, well, you don't believe in it at all. If you don't get passionate, get behind it, mm, put some, some kick behind your arguments, some, you know, in your face, then you, you don't care about it at all. Here's what he said, because he was a really intense guy. He said, Jeff, I've won so many arguments, but I've lost so many people. And I never forgot that. So when we find stuff that, you know, hopefully work, let's, let's remember that in the background. 
So here is the statement by uh, a Buddhist leader. I do not know how to pronounce his last name. We'll just use his first two initials. Here's what KN says. Uh, We need to expose the falsehood of atheism. Here's the quote. The Buddhist is an atheist, and Buddhism in both, both its Theravada and Mahayana forms is atheism. That's kind of like, I guess you could say, the Calvinist and the non-Calvinist in Christianity, or the, I don't know, the, the Baptist and the Methodist. Buddhism doesn't have a place for a god. doesn't. So here's the Buddhist argument against God from evil. If you say, you guys don't believe in God, this is what probably a practicing Buddhist would go, they would try to take you down this road. They would say, if God exists, then there's no evil. But there is evil. Therefore, God does not exist. So here's our question for discussion. What is the problem with this argument? If God does not exist, what would determine evil from that evil? Good. Yeah. I mean... What is to say something is evil? Don't you have to... Evil would be what? How could we classify or define evil? You know, like a violation of some law, right? A deviation from, from, from the norm. Like, for example, to hate, that is an evil. Well, why is that evil? Well, because there's a God of love who has commanded us to love one another. If we don't love one another and we hate one another, we're violating standards. It's a good point. Say, how can there be evil? Because that implies a standard. Good. So here, here's, a, here's one way that we could address this as well. Is this argument here that says that if God exists, then there would be no evil. It assumes that God and evil are incompatible. As well as God not having a reason for permitting evil. And we just went through seven weeks of that. And some guys are like, why would you ever take your church through seven weeks of the problem of pain and suffering and evil? People are going to go into depression because of that. But I think you pulled out of it. Amen. All right. (laughs) Hopefully we we solve some of the problem. But but it it has a false assumption that God could never allow evil for a purpose. Just very quickly, what are some things that God could use evil for that would eventually be good? Things are happening. Think they should. Hmm. Turn to God because you need Him. You need Him to help you with that mm-hmm. you're going through. Good, good. Yeah. It's it, trials or whatever. We all go through trials. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. It, it can turn us to God, mm-hmm. and and in the midst of that, it can cause us to realize that we do have a problem, mm-hmm. and that we do need God, and to realize our dependency upon Him. So yeah, great, great point. So here is Mr. Dalai Lama. Here is what he says. He says the entire Buddhist worldview is based on a philosophical standpoint in which the central thought is the principle of interdependence. Now let me stop right here. You guys noticing with Buddhism there's a lot more wordiness, a lot more philosophical terminology than with the other religions or philosophies. And here's a little note. If you get confused trying to study and understand Buddhism, welcome to the club. Because in order to be a good Buddhist, they will ask you, or in Zen Buddhism, they say, what is the sound of one hand clapping? If we're not walking in the spirit, you're like, well, I don't know, because the other one just smacked you in your face for asking a dumb question. You know, I mean, who cares? In the long, I mean, I, I just think that honestly, honestly, Satan is laughing with questions that he could have a rational person created in the image of God who lives their whole life trying to figure out what is the sound of one hand clapping. Really? Really? So, 
If some of this stuff is just like, what in the world are they talking about? That is the essence of Buddhism that nobody really knows ultimately what it means. Knows what, know what it doesn't, but that's, that's the nature of the beast. So, how all things and events come into being purely as a result of interactions between causes and conditions, within that philosophical worldview, it is almost impossible to have any room for an atemporal, eternal, absolute truth, nor is it possible to accommodate the concept of a divine creation. In other words, in Buddhism, there's no place for God. So here's our point. We cannot be Buddhist Christians. All right? There's some people who would even claim to be that, because in Buddhism, there is no creator. Christianity, there is. Um, But what problems, let's talk about this for a few minutes. What problems can you identify with denying the existence of a creator? Whether it's a Buddhist, atheist, atheist Darwinist, whatever it is. I mean, what, what is the problem with saying there is no creator? Good. Sure. Yeah. If we're really thinking about it, no moral standards. What else? I think sometimes it's good just to use, you know, what one farmer told me is horse sense. We can just look out, like in Romans one, about the creation that God has revealed, because there's the witness outside, which is the creation, and the witness inside in Romans 1 and Romans 2 that he has written on our hearts, his law. And so when, when, when Buddhists say that there is no God, that should be a real stopping point for us, shouldn't it? Just like, really? Okay, well, how did this happen? They believe that it's in cycles, but if a cycle is a cycle, it couldn't have come from nowhere, right? What started the cycle? Yeah. Yeah, it breaks down. Because if it's a cycle, it's cycling because of something to something. But if there's never a beginning to start the cycle, then that just logically breaks down, doesn't it? Um, this may just be another way of saying that if it's a cycle, then why are we here? What's our purpose? To get out of the cycle. Yeah, I mean, and that's the point of... of of nirvana and, in, and enlightenment to try to, to get out of the wheel of suffering. Because they think that life itself is suffering. So that's that's it. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, so here's what we're going to try to do and wrap this up. To make the correct distinctions. Um, where Buddhist, Buddhism focuses on ignorance and enlightenment, Christianity focuses on sin and redemption. Buddhism, they focus on bodhisattvas, which would be people in the past who have achieved being the rank of Buddha. Almost kind of like little g gods, spiritual people that can help you if you pray to them. I know. Um, but Christianity focuses on a personal God who revealed himself in Christ. You see, if you compare the two side by side, if you're going to have a philosophy or be religious at all, why would you not choose Christianity? You know what I'm saying? Like, if, you, if you're going to be, quote-unquote, religious or have a faith or anything like that, why, if you compare them side by side, and the biblical answer is because they love darkness rather than light. So that's our job to go expose that and preach the gospel. So Buddhism focuses on the uncertainty of enlightenment, whereas Christianity focuses on the certainty of heaven through faith in Christ. This is a verse that I would memorize if I were you. 1 John 13, 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? You may know that you have eternal life. And just this one verse, I think within Christianity, a lot of times we don't know what we have. It's kind of like American pickers. Or the flea market. To where you're walking along and you see some antique that's worth a thousand bucks and they're wanting ten for it. And you're like, they don't know what they have. In Christianity, just the concept of we know who God is and what He's like because of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done and the clear, simple offer of the Gospel that if you repent and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Saved from your past sins, saved in your present situation, and saved continually until He finally finishes the job and takes you to heaven. That's crazy. That's something that you don't find in any other world religion. So emphasize that, that you know that where you would go if you died. Maybe a lot of Christians that don't embrace that. And that, you're talking about the ones who can lose their salvation, they yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, they, have, they say they have a hope, but they never fully accept it. They know. That's a great point, Lee. Let, let's talk about that for a second. How would... Not having confidence that Christ has saved you, how would that affect your relationship with Christ? As opposed to, I've been saved by grace and He's going to keep me saved by grace. Yeah? Be a failure. I think you would have fear. Right. And if we don't believe that He has saved us, and by that past, present, perfect tense, then for me, what that would do is that would put all of the weight of staying saved on whom? On me. And if, not even like a Roman Catholic understanding to where, well, I have to do more, I have to do more. Not even that. But have I repented enough? Have I believed enough? And in both of those scenarios, who's at the forefront? Have I. That's why just the sovereignty of God and salvation, yes, the Bible tells us to respond. Yes, we have a responsibility to do that. But boy, once we receive that gift, it is a gift. And if it can be exchanged and returned, and exchanged and returned, it's not a gift. Are you going to say something, Lee? No. Okay. okay. Um, but Buddhism uh, has basically a resignation to the world's problems. They say we will look within. Whereas Christianity says to sacrifice your life in sharing the solution to the world's problem. Here's what we're going to try to break down in the last couple minutes. Luke 9, 23 through 26. This is common ground. For most of us. But here's Jesus' words. He said, If anyone would come after me and let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you look that up in the Greek, there's an extra little phrase there. And it says, Take up his cross daily, get behind me, and follow me. We don't have to translate that into English because it's redundant. It says the same thing. But when I was going through that, I said, That is cool. He says, if you're going to follow me, don't come from the side, don't meet me halfway. Get behind in a caboose and learn to follow me through humility. It's verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is an incredibly powerful text. From this text we see everything from going to India on a mission trip, like what Susan has done this past year, down to reaching out to our neighbors and people that nobody really cares about. It's huge. We all catch that. Buddhism, you look within, you try to seek enlightenment, nirvana, for who? For you. Because who's your only light? You. Who's there, whoever they may be? Who's their light? Them. So all you can tell them is to look within. So if we took Buddhism to like, I guess, a global proportion, we would have... However many billion people plus some, all looking within. Have y'all noticed in our culture that, have y'all ever seen people at restaurants who pull out their cell phone like this and it's a guy, it's a couple and they sit down at the table and they order and they pull out their cell phones and start playing with them? Have y'all seen that? Sometimes I just want to say, man, I don't care if you've been with her for a long time, but put down your cell phone and talk to her, guy, you know? And it's like we have this inward focus. And I can, I'm not going to harp on social media. I think we can use Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff for the Lord. But there's the tendency to focus within. Jesus is the ultimate example of focusing out to the point that he gave everything he had, his very life, so that people could be saved. Not just friends, Romans 5.8, and while we were still his enemies and sinners. So that concludes our our talks on Buddhism. I hope that they've been encouraging for you. But do y'all have any questions before we close up shop? Anything that you'd like to share in regards to that? Because I know that we have a billion Buddhists here in Franklin County. So, you know, but we just want people to be prepared. Well, next week we're going to start with Judaism. It'll probably take us a couple of weeks to get through that. And then after that, Uh, As far as I remember, we're going to start on Islam next month. So next week we'll do Judaism. And the last uh, Wednesday of this month, we're not going to do our standard reach out. Trish and Morgan are going to lead us, and we're going to prepare a lot of cards to send out to families of kids that have been involved with as far back as we can find, unless they're like you know 40 now, like if they're still kids, uh, to send that out and contact people for... um, BBS next month. So we're going to try to get a full month of preparation in, and then next month, the Wednesday before BBS starts, we're going to use that night to try to call and go visit as many of the people that we can and try to get them here for VBS. I'm looking forward to it. And um, y'all ready for VBS? It's, it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be hyperactive, and hopefully we'll see a lot of kids get saved. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we just thank you for the truth of the gospel and how you've broken through the darkness of every false religion and philosophy. And we just thank you that you have promised us and shown us that you are the light of the world. And if we follow you, if we walk after you, we will not walk in darkness, but we shall have the light not only of eternal life, but just wisdom on what to do. Lord, sometimes life just gets so difficult. We just say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And we know that we can come to you for answers in your word and through seeking counsel. So we just thank you, God, for the fact that you don't leave us just up on an island somewhere and tell us to do the best that we can, but you are there with us. And we pray once again, Lord, for Barry 
and uh, his procedure on Tuesday. We pray, Lord, that you would bring him through that with flying colors, and we would just um, you would give those doctors the wisdom and the skill that they need to do the best job possible for him. And we love him and Helene and the rest of the family, and we just thank you for the work that you continue to do in their lives and in the life of this church. Lord, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.